who or what are among the greatest gifts to you in life? If you had a top five or a top three kind of list, who would make it into your list? Uh, many of us might say Jesus, right? We might say that Jesus Christ, that he's God's greatest gift to us in life. We, we might include loved ones. So I would say that my wife, Lisa, is among the, the greatest gifts that I've ever been given. But among the greatest gifts that, that you've ever been given, would you include the Holy Spirit in your top five or top three? Did you know that you don't even receive Jesus apart from the Holy Spirit? But who is the Holy Spirit? He's, he's not a ghost like we imagine ghosts in connection with Halloween. No, we're, we're not telling ghost stories here. The Holy Spirit is God. He is very God. He is personal. He is active. He's even among us right now. He is who Christians are blessed by, possessed by, and believe in. Friends, this subject of our belief in the Holy Spirit is one of the core truths of Christianity. Without the Holy Spirit, there is no creation. Without the Holy Spirit, there is no application of salvation. It is the Spirit who unites us to the Savior, unites sinners to the Savior. Without the Holy Spirit, there is no sanctification. It's the Holy Spirit who enables and empowers us to die to sin and to live to righteousness for the glory of Jesus. Without the Holy Spirit, there is no Bible. It is the Holy Spirit who inspired the writers of Scripture. So what is it that we believe about the Holy Spirit? When we confess the words, we believe in the Holy Spirit, do we know what we're saying and what we mean by those words? That's what I hope to unpack for us as we drop back into our occasional doctrinal study through the Apostles' Creed. If you haven't done so already, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, verses 1 to 4. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find that passage on page 913. I know the bulletin has another text listed, and I promise we will get there, but that's where I want to begin. Acts chapter 5, uh, verses 1 to 4. In the earliest form, the Apostles' Creed emerged actually as a list of questions which candidates for baptism would be asked as they prepared to enter into the visible membership of the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ. This question and answer format of the Apostles' Creed was used by a pastor in Rome named Hippolytus around the time of 215 AD. The creed was refined throughout the years, and it likely reached its final form, the form that we use really in our services, uh, probably sometime around the 7th century. It's been used by Christians to confess our faith in the triune God then for nearly 1,800 years. To be sure, the Apostles' Creed was not so much written by Jesus' apostles as it was written to reflect the teaching of Jesus' apostles. The goal was to put into a succinct summation uh, the Christian faith. So today, as we look at the words, we believe in the Holy Spirit, what we're really going to do is examine the biblical underpinnings of those words, of that line in the creed. In other words, I'm not, I'm not actually preaching the creed. I'm preaching the doctrine of the Bible that the creed seeks to summarize. That's why we'll look at Acts chapter 5, verses 1 to 4, and John chapter 16, verses 7 to 15, and other important passages which teach us about the Holy Spirit. You'll find uh, an outline of the sermon there in your bulletin that I, I trust will help you follow along. Uh, the scripture passages that you see there that are underlined, those are especially the passages that I'll ask you either to turn to or that I will read. In the main, as we work our way through thinking through the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, uh, we'll simply ask three questions and see what the Bible has to say about them. So we'll ask, who is the Holy Spirit? We'll ask, what does the Holy Spirit do generally? We'll ask, what does the Holy Spirit especially do for Jesus and His people? And we'll spend really the, the most of our time on that last question. The doctrine of the Holy Spirit is a, a vast subject, and we cannot possibly cover every aspect of the Bible's teaching in our time together today. And I honestly feel a little bit guilty. I, I feel like I'm leaving out hundreds of things that I'd like to say on the Holy Spirit. But this is simply a survey, and it's an introduction to the doctrine. So we'll only survey some of the most important truths concerning the Holy Spirit in order to know what it is we believe and why we believe it. If this sermon kind of whets your appetite for thinking more about what the Bible teaches about the Holy Spirit, feel free to come and find me at the door after the service. There are tons of resources I'd be delighted to point you to to help you think through this uh, doctrine further. Here's, here's where I'd like for us to begin. I want to prove to you from the Bible 
that when we confess the words, we believe in the Holy Spirit, that what we are saying is this. We believe in the third person of the triune Godhead who is at work in the world, bringing glory to Jesus and Jesus' people to glory. That's what I want to try to prove to you from the Bible today. Let's turn and answer the first question. Who is the Holy Spirit? And here we learn that He is God. He's the third person of the triune Godhead. The the Scriptures teach us that there are three persons in the Godhead. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one God. Same in essence, equal in power and glory. And did did you know that the structure of the creed itself points to us to that reality. If you take a look there on the insert in your bulletin, how the the creed is broken up into those three paragraphs, you will see that the first paragraph is dedicated to God the Father and His work. The second is dedicated or related to the Son and His work. And the third paragraph is related to the Spirit and His work. Now, each person of the Godhead does more than what is listed in their particular paragraph. And... Each person of the Godhead is actually involved in in the work of the other two members of the Godhead. But when you're attempting to summarize each person's work, this is a good way to do it. Now, it it might be nice that the Creed places the Holy Spirit, right, among the Father and the Son, the first and second persons of the Godhead, and is indicating that the Holy Spirit is Himself God. But is that what the Bible actually teaches? Yes. This is why we turn to Acts chapter 5. Verses 1 to 4. Look at that passage and and see what Luke writes. He writes, But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Now Luke couldn't be any clearer, could he? He equates the Holy Spirit with God. You see there in verse 3 we're told that Ananias lied to the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 5 Luke tells us what that means. It means that he lied not to man, but to God. And there are dozens of other scripture passages that we could go to in order to lay out the divinity of the Holy Spirit. Frankly, we find Him everywhere in the Bible. And everywhere we find Him, we find Him exhibiting divine attributes. So in Romans chapter 1 verse 4, we're told that He's holy. Psalm 139 verses 7 and 8 tells us that He's everywhere, that He's omnipresent. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 13 tells us that He knows all things, that He's omniscient. Zechariah chapter 4 verse 6 indicates that He is all-powerful. He's omnipotent. Hebrews chapter 9 verse verse, verse 14 tells us that He is eternal. These are all attributes of God because the Holy Spirit is God. Because the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Godhead, He's intimately related to the Father and the Son. So in Matthew chapter 28 verses 19 and 20, He's seen as partnering in the work of the Father and the Son of the Great Commission, sending disciples out of the Great Commission. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 14, He's included in the benediction with the Father and the Son. He's part of the blessing upon God's people. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 6, we're told that in the lives of believers, it is the Spirit of the Son who causes us to cry to God as our Father. Christian, do you know why you pray to God the Father? It's because the Holy Spirit has come to live within you, make His home within you, and given you a heart to love God the Father because of His Son and what He's done. But there's another aspect of the Spirit's relationship with the Father and the Son that's unique. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. So, in John chapter 15, verse 26, we read, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, so this is Jesus sending the Spirit from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about Me. And what Jesus is stressing here is that the Father and the Son operate inseparably in their sending of the Spirit. Well, so far, I've actually been assuming something that I want to show you now from the Scriptures. You should see it for yourself. So turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, uh, you can find the passage on page 978. And here's what we're going to see. The Holy Spirit is not only God, but like the Father and the Son, 
He is also personal. He's personal. He's not some impersonal force. This is not Star Wars, the force be with you. No, no, no. He is personal. He is a person. He can be grieved. That's what we're going to see. You see there Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30? The Apostle Paul writes, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. So you, you can't grieve an impersonal force. But you can grieve your parents. You can grieve your boss. You can grieve your spouse and your friends. You can grieve other persons. The Holy Spirit's a personal being. Like other persons, He speaks. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. He loves. Romans chapter 15, verse 30. He comforts. Acts chapter 9, verse 31. He helps the weak. Romans chapter 8, verse 26. He guides. John chapter 16, verse 13. He wills. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11. And, and so much more. The Holy Spirit is a person. And this is why we always refer to Him as a He and not it. We should be careful not to depersonalize the Holy Spirit with our language. For doing so would dishonor Him. Now, it, it takes practice to speak biblically, faithfully, and accurately about our God. And unlike Alan Iverson, we should not despise such practice. We should give ourselves to honoring God appropriately and properly. But so what? So the Holy Spirit is God. So He's personal. So He proceeds from the Father. So what difference does this make in your life? What difference does it make? Well, it makes a difference in your worship. Which is actually why you exist. Right? The, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And a chief part of that is worship. So if you don't worship the triune God, if you don't offer the Holy Spirit your worship then you're either worshiping the wrong God or you're worshiping the right God in the wrong way. Neither of which are acceptable. So knowing who the Holy Spirit is informs our worship. And do you know what else informs our worship of the Holy Spirit? Knowing what He does. So let's turn now and answer our next question. What does the Holy Spirit do generally? I, I, I wonder what jumps into your mind when you think about the work of the Holy Spirit in the world. So for, for many Christians, many people, when they're asked, well, what does the Holy Spirit do? The first thing that jumps into their mind, the first answer that it will give is, He gives spiritual gifts. He does give spiritual gifts, to be sure. But when thinking about the work of the Holy Spirit, we should actually begin at the beginning. What does the Holy Spirit do generally? Well, He is at work in the world. He creates, He empowers, and He indwells. And in the beginning, by which I mean the very beginning of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, we see the Holy Spirit at work in creation. So in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, we read, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. But not just that. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, we read this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Who is the us who purposes to make man in his image? It's the triune Godhead of which the Spirit is a member. In the beginning, the Holy Spirit was at work at creation. And the truth is, He remained involved with His creation. So especially in the Old Covenant era, the Old Testament era, the Spirit was said to rush upon leaders of Israel, judges, kings, and prophets. So of, of Samson, in Judges chapter 14, verse 9, we read, The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 men, of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. Well, not only judges, but also kings. So that the Spirit of the Lord is said to rush upon uh, Saul and David as well. The Spirit of the Lord came upon prophets too. So in Micah chapter 3 verse 8 we read, But as for me, I am filled with power, the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. If you think back as well to the, to the making of the tabernacle, right? The Holy Spirit empowered artists in order to, to beautify the tabernacle with their art. So the Holy Spirit was at, at work empowering uh, people in the Old Covenant era to do various things. And, and I will say there, there does seem to be a difference between the Spirit's empowering presence in the Old Testament and His indwelling presence in the New Testament. In the Old Testament... As, as we've just been talking about, the Spirit tends to rush upon leaders in Israel to empower them for specific tasks 
and callings. He also certainly gave Old Testament believers faith in God's promises of a Messiah so that Old Testament believers are saved in precisely the same way that New Testament believers are saved, by faith in God's Christ. That said, in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit does not just rush upon God's people or momentarily dwell with them for the purpose of salvation. Now, according to the New Testament, He comes to live inside them. And this, this indwelling presence was actually promised and pictured in the Old Testament itself. See, the the Old Testament was always anticipating the full revelation of the new. So turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Sorry, not Ephesians. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 and 27. That's on page uh, 724 of the Bibles provided. This is actually part of the scriptural assurance of pardon that we read earlier. But if you turn there, you'll find Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26. You'll remember that in the, the Old Covenant, the Spirit of God made Yahweh's indwelling presence known in the tabernacle and the temple. So the Spirit, uh, He caused a glory cloud to be uh, filling the tabernacle and the temple, for lack of a better uh, term, on kind of on their opening ceremonies. Um, in the very throne room of God, there in the Holy of Holies, and inside the Ark of the Covenant, a copy of the law was placed, written, right, with the finger of God. With, with that in mind, read. Read Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 20. 6 and 27. We read, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Here are the promises of the new, te- of, of the new covenant concerning the spirit. Here Ezekiel is unfolding for us what will become explicit. In the new, right? In the new covenant, God will dwell within his people. By his spirit, he dwells in the throne room of our hearts. He writes his law upon them. No longer will he dwell in a tabernacle or a temple. Instead, he will live within the believer who is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6? Actually, exactly what Paul says. So after exhorting the Corinthian congregation to abstain from sexual morality... In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, Paul, he writes this. He writes, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Friends, brothers and sisters, this is one of the privileges of living in the new covenant era, of, of living on this side of Jesus' redeeming work. The Spirit comes to live within God's people. He lives within us. And this indwelling of the Spirit became especially evident on the day of Pentecost, didn't it? When Jesus poured out His Spirit for the purposes of blessing His people and furthering His mission. The Spirit's goal for His indwelling presence in the lives of believers is to glorify Jesus and to bring Jesus' people to glory. Which leads us to consider our third question. We're going to spend most of our time together. What does the Holy Spirit especially do for Jesus and his people. Here's the Bible's answers as best I think I can summarize it. The Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus and brings Jesus' people to glory. To see this, let me encourage you to turn your Bibles to John chapter 14. Turn to John 14. We're going to be looking at verses 15 to 18. Uh, that's on page 901 of the Bibles provided. John chapter 14. We're, we're actually about to take a brief tour through three chapters in John's Gospel, uh, through John chapters 14, 15, and 16, to see what Jesus says about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And and you need to know something of kind of the setting of these chapters. They take place in an upper room just before Jesus' betrayal and death. And in this upper room, Jesus gives a long speech. Theologians, commentators, scholars will often call it a discourse. So Jesus is giving kind of a long discourse. It's often called his farewell discourse. And at the beginning of chapter 14, if you scan your eyes there, you can see that Jesus has informed his disciples that he is going away to prepare a place for them. And as soon as Jesus says those words, he can kind of see the fear on um, his disciples' faces. And this is where the ministry and the work of the Holy Spirit is a blessing to Jesus' disciples. And we learn several lessons about the Holy Spirit 
from God's Word. Here's the first lesson that we learn about the Holy Spirit. He is a helper and a homemaker. Pastor and scholar Sinclair Ferguson, in his book, Lessons from the Upper Room, pointed out that Jesus is a homemaker first. Right? When he told his disciples in John chapter 14, verse 2, that he was going away to prepare a place for his disciples in his father's house, he was promising to make a home for his people when they came to join him in glory. And what Jesus turns around and promises next is that the Holy Spirit would make his home inside his disciples. So Jesus is a homemaker, the Holy Spirit is a homemaker in that sense. So how is it that this would take place? Well, Jesus, he promises there in verses 15 to 18. Read those verses now. Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Just stop there. Do you see what Jesus says about the Holy Spirit? He says there in verse 16, he will be a helper and he'll be a homemaker in the sense that he'll make his home inside the disciples there in verse 17. Now note carefully that Jesus says the Holy Spirit will be another helper. And the idea underneath that word another is that he would be just like the first. He would be a help to the disciples just like Jesus was a help to them. He would be like Jesus. He would be a divine help just like Jesus had been during his earthly ministry. And that word helper is not like the word helper in Genesis 2 referring to Adam's wife Eve. No, the word helper is parakletos, which means counselor, encourager, or mediator. even has connotations of being an advocate. So just as Jesus had counseled and encouraged the disciples on earth, so the Holy Spirit would counsel and encourage the disciples concerning the wisdom of Jesus while he was in heaven. And the word helper, as I said, can also carry with it the idea of an advocate. It has a legal sense to a certain degree. Jesus, we're told in John chapter 2, verse 1, is our advocate with the Father when we sin. So Jesus is our advocate in heaven, and the Holy Spirit, living within God's people, is our advocate on earth, within us on earth. So we have two members of the triune Godhead advocating for us, one on earth and one in heaven. So with, with resources to the Holy Spirit on earth, He defends us when Satan accuses us. He even intercedes for us when we don't know what to pray, as we're told in Romans chapter 8, verse 26. So, so how, how does the Spirit's work bring glory to Jesus? Do you see what verse 18 says? It says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And sometimes it feels like this doesn't make sense. Wait, wait a minute, Jesus. What are, you, what are you saying? You told us that you were going away and you're going to send another, why are you now saying that you will come to us? Well, Jesus comes to us through the presence of the Holy Spirit within us. So the Holy Spirit, he mediates Jesus' presence to his disciples. The Holy Spirit, Jesus says there in John chapter 14, verse 17, will be in you. And I don't know if you notice this, but Jesus talked about how he'd be in you forever. Notice the kind of eternality of the Spirit Jesus is indicating to us there. So the Holy Spirit, he, he mediates the presence of Jesus Christ to us. This is why the scriptures so often refer, actually, to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of Christ. The Spirit mediating Jesus' presence brings Jesus glory as it fulfills his promise never to leave us or forsake us. Dr. Ferguson, who I, I mentioned a moment ago, rightly points out that both Jesus and the Holy Spirit invest great glory into the idea of homemaking. So, though the world may mock the idea of turning a house into a home, filling it with learning and love and laughter, though the world may mock the idea of homemaking, Jesus and the Holy Spirit invest the idea with majesty. Jesus, he builds on his teaching concerning the Holy Spirit just a few verses later in John 14. So skip ahead to verses 25 and 26 of this same chapter. You see John chapter 14, verses 25 and 26. After Jesus tells his disciples that the Holy Spirit will be a helper, and a homemaker, we also learn that he will be a teacher. Read verses 25 and 26 of John 14. Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, 
He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. This promise of Jesus is first and foremost a promise to his disciples in that upper room. We've got to be careful about our, our applications here because Jesus is very much speaking very directly to his disciples in that upper room. But what does Jesus promise that the Holy Spirit will teach them? He says the Holy Spirit will teach them all things. Really? Is Jesus promising his disciples that the Holy Spirit is going to teach them the quadratic equation? No. No. Uh, Jesus, notice the and there in verse 26. It it functions as a way of kind of explanation. So, So Jesus is saying something like this. The Holy Spirit will teach you all things. And what I mean by that is he will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you in the course of my ministry. So here's Jesus' explanation of how the Spirit inspires the Scriptures that would come about. Recognize, too, just how closely related the Spirit's teaching is to Jesus' teaching. So after He ascends into heaven, the Spirit is going to bring to mind all the things that Jesus said and did. And where do we have that teaching? We have it in the Gospels, like the Gospel of John that we're in the middle of right here. And we have the implications of Jesus' teaching in the epistles, in the, the letters. And in fact... Uh, when we come to read the passage just a little bit later, in John chapter 16, verse 13, um, Jesus will say that the Spirit will declare to you the things that are to come. So in this upper room, we have teaching from Jesus. We have a promise that the Spirit will inspire the whole New Testament, the Gospels, the Epistles, and Revelation. And the Apostle Peter confirms Jesus' teaching that the Holy Spirit is involved in the work of inspiration. And he also includes the Old Testament. So in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, we read this. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul, he actually sheds light on this from another direction as well. So in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, he writes this, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped, for every good work. Did you hear what Paul said there? He said, tells Timothy that all scripture is breathed out by God. And that phrase, breathed out by God, is captured in the Greek word theonoustos. And sometimes, though sometimes translated God inspired, it literally means God expired. Uh, That's of course what you do when you speak. You expel and you expire air. You may not know this, but in the Old Testament, The Hebrew term that the Holy Spirit is often associated with is ruach, which can mean wind or breath. Uh, So so remember we read from Ezekiel 37 earlier, right? Prophesy the breath. Uh, There's an association with the Spirit. And the New Testament term for the Holy Spirit, pneuma, has the exact same connotations. So just as God spoke the world into existence, He spoke the Word into existence by the Holy Spirit who carried men along. So we have the Bible, the whole Bible, In no small part because of the work of the Holy Spirit. And this brings glory to Jesus because the the Bible is telling us about God's Messiah and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And here, just thinking about this teaching from Jesus in the upper room. Because the Spirit did teach them all things and bring to remembrance all that Jesus said and did. We have all that we need for life and godliness in the Scriptures. This brings glory to Jesus as we have the complete revelation and explication of His redemptive work in the Bible. This helps us to make it to glory as God's Word leads and guides us here in the course of our journey on earth. The special work of the Holy Spirit for Jesus and His people is to be a helper, a homemaker, a teacher, and a witness. That's what we see next. Skip ahead to the next chapter, John chapter 15. You see verses 26 and 27? As we prepare to read these verses, you should know that what Jesus has just told his disciples. He has just told them that if the world hates him, then they will hate them because of Jesus. So when you face the hatred of the world, then you're tempted to close your mouth. We saw that last week when we said the Apostle Paul in Corinth, didn't we? Right? He was there in Corinth, all alone, had kind of just been pushed out of the synagogue, And Jesus comes to him in a vision to encourage him to keep speaking. He was hated. He was tempted to stop speaking. And here Jesus promises 
the disciples, that when they are hated and tempted to be quiet, he would help them. He would bear witness to them about Jesus and help them bear witness. Read John chapter 15, verses 26 and 27. Jesus says this, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. Now what's interesting is the Spirit had been with Jesus from the beginning. So what a wonderful help Jesus is sending to his disciples. The Spirit has known Jesus from the very beginning. And so he can communicate everything that we need to know about Jesus. And everything the disciples need to know about Jesus. And he helps them. Jesus says at least two really important things here that we need to pay attention to. First, he says the Holy Spirit will, Spirit will bear witness about him. This is the peculiar work of the Holy Spirit. It's to bear witness about Jesus and his messianic kingship. So Christian, when you, when you talk about the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, you should be talking about Christ. He, the Holy Spirit, bears witness to Christ. The mission of the Spirit is to bear witness to Christ. As, as one theologian made clear, he wrote, quote, The true sign of the presence of the Spirit is not that people talk about the Spirit, but that they talk about Christ. So think about that in the context of spiritual gifts, right? If those gifts that the Spirit gives are given, if they draw attention to the person or to the Spirit, they're not actually from the Holy Spirit because they should be drawing attention to Jesus Christ. The Spirit's work is especially to point to Jesus Christ. So, Jesus promises that the Spirit of truth will bear witness to, to Him. Right? The one who is the way, the truth, and the life. Second, note carefully, that the Spirit, having borne witness to Jesus, will help the apostles to bear witness about Jesus. The Savior goes on to say in the following verses that the apostles will actually be put out of synagogues and even killed. But even in the midst of this opposition, the Spirit would help the apostles and early Christians to bear witness about Jesus amid hostility. And that's exactly what we've been seeing in the book of Acts, right? When we've been studying it. Peter and John and Paul faced opposition and they kept right on bearing witness, didn't they? Stephen, think of Stephen. He faithfully bore witness to Jesus unto death. We're even told that some of them rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. And what did they do? They turned around and went right back out and bore witness to Jesus Christ. How were they able to do these things? By the Spirit, bearing witness in their hearts that Jesus was the Messiah and that He was worthy. They weren't afraid to be on the wrong side of history because they knew the Lord of history. They knew that at the end of history, they would be on Jesus' side. The Lamb would triumph in the end. Bearing witness to Jesus amid opposition it brings Jesus great glory. And the Holy Spirit makes that possible. Bearing witness to Jesus amid opposition shows the world that Jesus, in the words of uh, George Michael Pfefferkorn's great hymn, Jesus is your treasure, your life, your health, your wealth, your friend, your love, your pleasure, your joy, your crown, and your all. The founders of this nation, when they signed the Declaration of Independence, pledged their lives their fortune, and their sacred honor. Jesus is worth that and much more. Beloved, when you are tempted to close your mouth because you fear the scorn of the world, pray for the Holy Spirit to bear witness in your heart so that you can bear witness to Jesus. Jesus' final teaching concerning the work of the Holy Spirit in the upper room is found in John chapter 16, verses 5 to 15. Here we learn that he convicts the world and communicates the glory of Jesus. Read John chapter 16, verses 5 to 15 now. Jesus said, But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, Where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father. 
and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. You see there in verse 5, Jesus once again tells his disciples that he is about to return to the Father who sent him. And he asks us questions. None of you asks me where I'm going. You can tell that Jesus uh, understands what lies ahead of him. He, he knows that he has to go through the cross and, and death. And his disciples are somewhat oblivious to this. And still, Jesus graciously assures them that his departure, did you see this word in the text? His departure is to their advantage. Think about that. They're thinking right there in that room, I'm going to le- lose This one who has been my rabbi and teacher for the last three years. How can that be an advantage to me? Jesus' departure, he says, is not a loss, but a gain. As a result of Jesus going away, they will receive the wonderful gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, One person uh, put it this way. Jesus inside you is better than Jesus beside you. Because he's with you each and every day. So they would receive... The Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, He can't come to you unless unless I go away. So so Jesus says that He will. But what does this gift mean? What what are the implications of of the coming of the Holy Spirit? First, you notice that Jesus says when the Spirit comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. He, as we've seen already, He is a helper and defender of the faithful. But notice here now that He's a witness on behalf of believers. We saw that. But he is a prosecuting attorney. And he is a witness against the faithless. The world's great sin is that it does not believe in Jesus. It believes in just about everything else. But not in Jesus. Part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to expose the world's unbelief. And prove them guilty of it. And he does it on the basis of Jesus' righteousness. That's the point that Jesus is making there in verse 10. In connection with his going to the Father. What's he saying when he's going to the Father? He's saying he's going to go to heaven. He's going to ascend into heaven. And who is welcome in heaven? Only the righteous. So Jesus' resurrection and ascension, it proves he was innocent, even while the world proclaimed him to be guilty. As the apostles went out to to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit would go out to convict men of sin as they see their utter unrighteousness in the face of the blazing glory of Christ's righteousness. And Jesus tells us there in verse 8 that the Spirit, He will convict the world concerning judgment. The world has judged Jesus. If you've been with us on Wednesday nights, you've seen that over and over and over again, where they sit in judgment on Jesus. But Jesus says that, that He will convict the world concerning judgment. The world had judged Jesus, but the Spirit will convict men and the world that their judgment about Jesus was wrong. And the startling revelation that verse 11 brings out is that the ruler of this world is judged. The world is judged along with its ruler. And the ruler of this world is none other than Satan. So here Jesus is telling us that Satan is presently under judgment and condemnation. And Christian, you just need to take something in about this for just a minute. The world will be duly compensated for its unbelief. The world will be duly compensated for its unbelief But do not let that reality become a seed of pride in your heart. Your non-Christian friends, co-workers, and family members are lost. Christian, they will die and go to hell apart from Jesus Christ. Their sin and their guilt will be exposed. Their righteousness will be compared to Christ's and be found wanting, hopelessly wanting, and they will be judged. They deserve our pity and our prayers and our proclamation, not our contempt. So love your unbelieving friends and family members and co-workers. Pray for them and proclaim Jesus to them. The Holy Spirit, we see here, He convicts the world of sin. But He also communicates the glory 
of Jesus. That's really what verses 12 to 15 are all about. These verses are connected up with the doctrine of inspiration. We talked about that earlier. The Spirit's ministry, as we can see there in verses 13, 14, and 15, is constrained to what the Son gives Him to speak. So the Holy Spirit doesn't go and just do whatever He wants and wills. He moves under the direction of the Father and the Son. He's sent by the Father and the Son. So, so what does that mean for us? That the Spirit is constrained to give what the Son speaks. Well, it means that we have the Word of Christ. And since we do, we should give ear to it. Christian, we have in God's Word every word that we need about Jesus and from Jesus. So, we should listen to God's Word. We should read it. We should speak it. We should memorize it. We should study it. And does this mean that the Spirit will guide us into all truth as well? Yes. Not precisely in the same way He he did with the disciples in inspiring the Scripture. The Spirit guides us into all truth as He guides us right into God's Word. The Spirit guides us into all truth by reminding us of what we learn from the Scripture and by applying it to our hearts and lives. This is how the Spirit works in the lives of God's people today. He deepens our knowledge of Jesus through the only means that we have to come to know Jesus, the very Word of Christ. And this leads us to how the Spirit brings Jesus' people to glory. Not only does the Spirit bring glory to Jesus through the preaching of the Word of Christ, He also brings glory to Jesus in saving sinners in connection with the preaching of the Word of Jesus. So every aspect of our salvation is the work of the triune God, which by nature the Spirit is especially involved in. So the Spirit brings Jesus' people to glory by calling us to salvation in Christ, by recreating us in Christ, by connecting us to Christ, and by comforting us and and conforming us to Christ until we're collected by Christ. Let me explain what that means. The Spirit's work of bringing Jesus' people to glory begins by effectually calling us to salvation in Jesus Christ. So what is the effectual calling of the Spirit? Well, as the old catechisms teach, effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit whereby He convinces us of our sin and misery and He enlightens our minds in the knowledge of Christ and He renews our wills. Having done so, He persuades and He enables us to embrace Jesus Christ as He's freely offered to us in the Gospel. So, when the Gospel is preached and the Holy Spirit attends and accompanies that preaching, He effectually calls us. Think back to that passage in Ezekiel chapter 37 that we read earlier, right? He said, speak, and the Holy Spirit attended, and the the bones received the sinews, and the the, the flesh came upon those bodies. He recreates us. He renews us. He sovereignly works in our hearts to renew us, recreate us, to regenerate us, and make us alive to Jesus Christ so that we respond to the call to come to Jesus in faith. So in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Verses 13 and 14, Paul puts it like this. He says, But we ought also to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through the sanctification by the Spirit. You hear that? By the setting apart of the Holy Spirit for salvation and belief in the truth. To this He called you. How did He do that? Well, He did it in connection through the gospel, our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. The effectual calling of the Holy Spirit in connection with the preaching of the gospel means to bring us all the way to glory. And I want to draw out one crucial aspect of this effectual calling. That's the Spirit's work in regeneration. As I said, the Spirit brings Jesus' people to glory by recreating us, regenerating us, and causing us to be born again. This is necessary because we're dead in our trespasses and sins. And it is the Holy Spirit who makes us alive to God. That's why that passage in Ezekiel 37 is so uh, profound and wonderful. Those are dead bones. And those bones can't do anything to make themselves alive. God has to send His preacher and His spirit to make them alive. The great picture of God's spirit making that valley of dry bones alive through the preaching of the Word. Well, similarly, Jesus, in John chapter 3, verse 3, He tells a Pharisee named Nicodemus, That unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So Nicodemus, as a a teacher, he's confused by this. And so Jesus tells him, in verse 5 of John 3, that you must be born of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus, he is exceedingly clear with Nicodemus. 
he tells him, unless you are born again by the Holy Spirit, there is no entrance into the kingdom of God. This, as I said, is sometimes called regeneration. We read about this in Titus chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. As I read these verses, listen to who does the work. Paul writes, God saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. See, it's the Holy Spirit who renews us, makes us new creatures in Jesus Christ. He regenerates us and causes us to be born again. But what happens then? It's that we embrace Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit, He connects us to Christ. So if we are to know salvation in Jesus Christ, we must be called, recreated, or born again. And since salvation is only in Jesus, we've got to be connected to Him. He's where all the benefits are. Now, this is what faith does. It's a, a gift of God imparted to us by the Holy Spirit. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. He writes, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation... And believed in Him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. We are headed to glory because of the work of the Spirit in our hearts and connecting us to the Lord of glory. As Paul said, But until we get there, the Spirit is at work conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ. And we need the Spirit's work in our life each and every day. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Paul writes, And we all, with unveiled face, Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Who is it that's transforming us? Well, it's the work of the Holy Spirit within us. You hear what the Holy Spirit is doing in Jesus' people? He's changing us. He's making us more like Jesus Christ. In the lives of Jesus' people, the Holy Spirit, He helps us to die to sin and to live to righteousness. As Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 13, it's by the Spirit that we put to death the deeds of the body, flesh. So do you want to know how you will have the power to resist Satan and to resist sin? It's by the power of the Holy Spirit. We will not be perfect and sinless like Jesus in this life, but until Jesus returns to collect us and to bring us home to glory, we will increasingly bear the fruit of the Spirit, which was so clearly seen in Jesus' life. By God's grace and the work of the Spirit, a Christian's life will begin to produce the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Maybe we should be praying for this fruit to emerge in our lives. You know, lately when um, Lisa and I have been tucking the kids into bed at night, uh, one member of the family has been asking that we pray for increasing patience. So when we pray, we appeal to the Holy Spirit to grow us all in patience. That's a gift that He gives. So, brothers and sisters, uh, I, want, I want to encourage you to pray. If you want to grow in the likeness of Jesus, pray for the Spirit to produce such fruit in your hearts and lives. Make that list of fruit a prayer list for yourself. And ask the Lord Jesus to work that in your heart. I, I, want, I want you to turn to one last text. I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage on page 900. And 76, 976. I actually read the first part of this passage just a minute ago, but I want to read it again. And here's why. It is a decisive passage which reveals that the Spirit will bring Jesus' people to glory. So in, in the verses that we're about to read, we are reminded that we're sovereignly sealed for salvation. We are guaranteed an inheritance and glory, and the Spirit is the down payment of that inheritance. So just like you make a down payment on a house, and that's a promise to pay the rest off. Well, that's what happens with our salvation. The Spirit is the, the down payment on the fullness of our salvation. So Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. Paul writes, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of of His glory. Well, friends, in light of, of these verses, I want to conclude with a word of application to do two groups of people here this morning. And really, there are only two groups of people here this morning. I want to give a word of application to those of you who are not yet believers and followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And I want to give a word of application to those of you who are. So friend, if you're here this morning, you're not a believer, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then I want to invite you to come to Jesus Christ today. Follow Him today. Only those who have the Spirit of Christ will be welcomed into the kingdom of God. Only those who have the Spirit of Christ will be collected by Christ and brought into glory. And friend, maybe you want that. I I pray that you do. Maybe you're wondering, how do I receive the gift of the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit has often been called the hidden member of the Trinity. One Christian said that the Holy Spirit is Jesus' floodlight. He's, He's not trying to draw attention to himself. He's trying to point to Jesus. So here's how you know if you have the Holy Spirit. If you love Jesus. If you have turned from your sin and placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit doesn't want you to be absorbed with Him. He wants you to be absorbed with Jesus. He wants you to love and adore Jesus. So friends, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. Come to Jesus. Jesus lived a sinless life. He died a sacrificial death, bearing the punishment for the sins of His people on the cross. And He was raised from the grave on the third day so that you might escape the punishment that your sins deserve. So friend, believe that Jesus lived for you, that He died for you, that He was raised from the grave for the forgiveness of your sins. And in doing so, you will show that you have the gift of the Holy Spirit because He is the one who gives us a love for the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you persevere in that faith, that will be the work of the Holy Spirit in you as well. And if you want to know more about what it means to love the Lord Jesus, to follow Him in faith, come and find me at the door after the service. I'd love to talk to you about this good news. And Christian brothers and sisters, beloved, as we conclude, I want to encourage you with a word of application too. Here it is. Keep in step with the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. Do not gratify the desires of your sinful flesh. Do not grieve Him by coddling sin, by holding on to it, protecting it, keeping it safe. Do not grieve Him by being conformed to the world. Instead, be filled with Him. Pray and ask for Him to exert more of His influence in your life. Pray that He would rule over every thought and every word and every deed. We've learned in our time together this morning that the Spirit writes God's law upon our hearts, which means that it becomes our desire to do God's law. Follow those promptings of the Spirit. When you read God's Word, when you read a command, that's a prompt from the Holy Spirit for you to obey God. So so follow those promptings. Do not reject those promptings and do not neglect them either. Put yourself in the way of the means that the Spirit uses to grow us and glorify Jesus in us. Read the word that he has inspired under the direction of Jesus and pray for him to illumine it, to to make it bright and clear to you as you read and meditate on it. And with joy in your heart, give thanks for the Holy Spirit. Recognize that with Jesus, he is the greatest gift that you've been given. Remember and give thanks that he has called you to Jesus. Remember and give thanks that he has connected you to Jesus. Remember and give thanks that He is conforming you to Jesus. And give thanks that He will keep and guard you until Jesus comes to collect you. Let's give thanks to God the Father and the Son for the gift of the Spirit. Now, let's pray together.